0: Welcome to the Hillside Community Church Podcast. Wherever you're at in your faith, we hope this episode encourages you. If you enjoy the listen, let your friends know. and We'll catch you next time. We are looking at Hebrews, uh, the end of it, really, which sort of is the climax, the rhetorical climax of this incredible book the end of 12 and end of 13. And the writer presents believers on a journey. It's a faith journey. And it's a hard journey. And he presents that uh, a destination for us. In other words, he's gonna say fight the fight of faith and get to this city. A metaphor that we still haven't fully exhausted yet but, um, but it's a city God has created for us. Something only he could provide. We, we could never find it here. And we've presented to you uh, that this is the life you've always wanted. All of your longings in your life sort of culminate in this picture. Uh, C.S. Lewis in The Weight of Glory kind of presents it like this. There's a sense that in the universe, we're treated as strangers. And we have this longing to be acknowledged. To meet with some response. To bridge some chasm that yawns between us and reality. And he says, he calls it part of our inconsolable secret. We all have it. He says, and surely from this point of view, the promise of glory or this city, in the sense described, becomes highly relevant to our deep desire. For this promise of God, this future hope, means we will have a good report with God. We will be accepted by God, responded to. We will have acknowledged, been acknowledged. And welcomed into the heart of things. That's how he says it. Welcomed into the heart of things. The door on which we have been knocking all our lives open at last. That's the promise. Um, I just finished reading Philip Yancey's book, uh, Vanishing Grace. Tells the story. Mark Rutland uh, recalls a survey that was given that he read in which Americans were asked what words they would most like to hear. And he predicted the first choice, which is, I love you. Number two was, I forgive you. And the third choice took him a little by surprise, supper's ready. (laughs) He says it dawned on him that all three of these statements are really a summary of the gospel. We're loved by God. We're forgiven by God, and we're invited to that banquet table. And that's the gospel. That's essentially what this city is all about. Now, we have been describing uh, an important theological reality that when you come to Christ, you're already a part of that city. And so there's a sense in which you already are Experiencing the wonders of that city even though you haven't fully arrived at it yet. So it's an already, not yet kind of theology. Okay, it's all through your New Testament. And so with an incredible amount of elegance and intensity that in one sense we already have it, we should be celebrating that. In the other sense, it's not here yet and so you cannot give up the fight for faith which is what he's arguing here, or you'll miss out on everything. And so he's teaching us how, even though we haven't arrived in that city, to live as though we're already, and that's the city us. He's trying to ultimate the big city, cityfy I wanna just say these two things, because this happens to people. Uh, I want you to know something, your faith is vulnerable. Not everybody who starts the journey ends it. Many people bail. It's not a given. And so we have to be ready. So if you're taking your faith for granted at any level today, the writer of Hebrews would almost want to call you into his office and have a And have a chat with you before we jump into chapter thirteen, which is where all of the sort of the city image and practice is going to come to the forefront. I have couldn't resist one more look at the end of twelve as 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 a way to prepare us for chapter thirteen. Before we ascend the peak. Ever been on a hike, or if you've ever done a climb, right before you get to the peak? And you bag that peak, they call it. You need to be prepared for it. So uh, let's do that. And what I've done is I've created a chart for you. This is the end of 12 in the 13. If you grasp this chart, you'll be ready for 13. Uh, if not, um, you won't be ready. What can I say? Now, I'm gonna walk you through it, and once I'm done, I think you'll, you'll, you'll get it, so don't try to understand it all right now. Let's go through it together. So here's what we learned. It'll be a good summary for those of you who haven't been here for the last few weeks. We learned at the end of chapter 12 that there are two approaches to life. You can approach life like you're... like. Like the the Israelites did approaching Mount Sinai, which they wanted to be in God's presence, but there was no way they could get there. God was too holy, and they were too sinful. Or so you can approach God like an achiever. Hey, God, look what I've done. Look what I have. Look what, you know, you're going to be proud of me. Uh, Let me show you who I am and why you want me in your presence. And it doesn't work that way. So we said you can approach life as an achiever. Approach God that way. Or you can approach God like a receiver, someone who gets the life. And so we said, he says in the end of Hebrews, you haven't come to Mount Sinai. You have come to the city. You have come to Mount Zion, where God dwells in the city. And so God, he describes this beautiful place of grace, where you're a receiver. You don't come there to show God what you have. You come there to receive something you do not have. And remember, C.S. Lewis said, you can approach God, we all every single day, walk the razor's edge between these two incredible possibilities of judgment or reception by grace. The razor's edge. Now, uh, if you've come to that city, remember he's trying to city us. If you've come to that big city, you've got to learn how to live in that Grace. Uh, and Hebrews 7 through 10, if you haven't read that in a while, just read it a few times this week in preparation for today, you will see the lengths to which God has come and gone to make sure that this place is available to people by grace. And you will get the only, what, what was read this morning, is the only conversation you and I have been given or able to see that the Trinity had before Jesus came here? In Hebrews 10. And you see the great lengths God went to make this place possible. What kind of conversation would have been something like, well, we're gonna have to disrupt this incredible community that we have together. We're gonna have to disrupt that. And I'm actually going to have to give you a body, Jesus. I'm going to have to give you a body. And Jesus, remember in the text, you hear him say, a body you have prepared for me. You want me to take a body? I'll take a body. And then you want me to go down there and die? Yeah, I'll go down there and die. Incredible lengths God has gone to make it possible for us to be in his presence. That's what he wants. And so there is a sense in which we've sort of come to this this party. We described it as a party. That's how Hebrews described it, This celebration of grace. And so uh, now we're trying to figure out how to live there at this peak. And I don't know if I read an interesting article. It's actually been a while now, but I picked it back up again. Uh, More people have died on Mount Everest this year than any other time. And so I've been reading a few articles on why that is. I'm fascinated by that. And there's a number of reasons. There's crowding. There's um, the weather, uh, unique. Um, This year, 11 people have died. This is the last number I got. Uh, But the root problem in this article that I read was primarily, it's still the inexperience of climbers as well as the inexperience of the operators who are guiding the inexperienced climbers. And he says this this lack of experience takes all the other problems and it just exacerbates them. You get into these circumstances, get into these dynamics up there. You enter what they call the death zone. And because you do not know what to do, and your body's not designed to be it, almost 27,000 feet, or at the peak, 29,000. People can't make it. And a lot of people enter the faith the same way, and they get really close, but they don't get all the way up. And the writer of Hebrews is saying, you're partly in the city now because you've given your life, but you've got to bag that peak, and you're going to be in the death zone occasionally. And you better know what you're doing. It's, it's a life or death thing. So he's trying to say, you got to take your faith seriously. It's your faith that's going to get you to that peak. Now, because of the lengths God has gone to make this even possible, all right, our next picture in this thing was guess what's going to happen to you? What kind of judgment there will be? You think there was judgment if you approached the way Israel approached Sinai, you thought that was big and it was pretty powerful the way he described that judgment. He said, it's gonna be nothing like the judgment for those who have sort of figured out what grace is and decided they didn't want it. The judgment will be far worse. And so when you read 25 through 27, and I'll show you verse 25, here's what he says after he says about this beautiful city available to us. Take care not to refuse the one who is speaking. Who's speaking now? If they didn't escape when they refused who warned them on earth, that's those at Sinai, how much less shall we if we reject the one who warns from heaven? If we approached the city and tried to get to God up there on the mountain and we couldn't do it, and we got judged... How much more do you think after God has sent his son down there to give you grace and you reject it, how much more judgment do you think you'll receive after God went to such lengths to save you? He's saying it's worse. It's sort of the idea that this is why this particular message in the book of Hebrews is primarily for people who go to church. It's for people who hang around the city a little. They they there's things about the city they like. There's something about grace they're attracted to, and they come to the party and they dance for a little while, but at some point they get tired of it and they 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 decide they they don't want to do it anymore. And they sort of walk away from the grace. Maybe life just got too hard. Uh, Maybe culture was too overwhelming. Uh, Maybe they started wanting things they've never wanted before. Those are some of the reasons. And so people bail on it. And I want to read you in Hebrews chapter 10 what happens if you decide to go from here uh, back over to here. You know, become an achiever instead of a receiver. You know, give, give God back his grace then your judgment's worse. Listen to what Hebrews 10 says. If we deliberately keep on sinning after we've received the knowledge of the truth, in other words, you've come to the party and danced for a while, there's no more sacrifice for sins for you. I mean, if you bail on what God did to take care of the sin, now there's nothing to take care of your sin. All there is is a certain judgment. And a fire, a fire that consumes. Remember we talked about what happens? God's like a fire. And it'll consume you if you come there. Become an enemy of God. Someone who rejected the law of Moses, Sinai, was put to death without mercy on the basis of two or three witnesses. How much greater punishment do you think the person who deserves, the person deserves, who has contempt for the Son of God, Listen to what happens. He profanes the blood of the covenant, that's Jesus' sacrifice, that made him holy and insults grace. That's even worse. You insult grace. You get around grace for a little while, it's not enough for you, you bail on it. And you walk away. Have you been reading lately about the deconversion stories of people? I mean, people are deconverting. They're bailing on their faith. Famous people. Josh Harris, famous pastor. He's the one who wrote the book, I Kiss Dating Goodbye. Marty Sampson, the songwriter for Hillsong. Wrote some of the worship songs you sing. They're bailing on the faith. So when we look at our chart, okay, uh, it's if you, you get around grace, and by getting around grace, I mean those been around the church, you've heard it before, you even pop into church now and then, it doesn't dominate your life, but you've heard it all before, that's this person, You might even think one day you did it and you're not sure, you did it before, you're not sure, that person. It's worse for that person because they know. And so on either side of this, the issue is how how well do you understand and know grace? Because you don't want to insult grace. Now, in chapter 12 and verse 15, he'll say, speaking of deconversion stories, He'll say, leading up to this text, don't fall short of the grace. Don't fail to ascend the peak. Don't come this far in your faith and bail on it. That's don't fall short of the grace. On the other hand, in chapter 13, we're going to look better to have your heart, he says, strengthened by grace. You can't be cityfied. You can't learn to to know how to live in God's city unless you're overwhelmed by grace. You're either strengthened by that grace or you fall short of that grace. And his illustration, before he gets to here, his illustration of a person falling from grace is Esau. He says in verse 15, see to it that no one comes short of the grace of God. Remember what we said last week? What was the greatest mission in life? Is to figure out how to receive God's grace. You certainly don't want to learn about the grace, receive the grace, and then fall short of it. And he's going to give you an illustration of somebody who did. See to it that no one becomes immoral or godless. Like Esau. He literally sold his birthright. Gave away his rights and citizenship. The firstborn, remember, everyone who's come into the city of God, who gets grace, are all firstborns. We learned last week. He sold his birthright for one meal. You can go back and read it in Genesis chapter 25. It's an incredible story. For you know later he wanted the blessing. Later he wanted it. But he was rejected. He found no opportunity for repentance. He never turned around. He never came back to the grace. Although he wanted the blessing, he didn't want the repentance. And that's the way all that's the way a lot of human beings are. We want everything God's promising. We just want it our way. And that's just. It's just not going to work that way. And so, he's, he, so what Esau had, if you're the firstborn and your father dies, you get everything. Esau had everything. And what he did was, according to the text, he despised the future promise. And that's everyone who doesn't get to the peak, by the way. They get really close, but they don't get to the peak. They finally just look up there and go, I don't think there's anything up there I really care about. They just forget about what's ahead of them. And then they choose some less worthy meal rather than rather than trust God for their well-being. They just decide to take matters into their own hands. And there's just something here that looks really good to them. And it's compared to a meal. You're gonna give up. This is the way the writer describes it. You're gonna give up what God's promised up here for a single meal. Really? And that's what happens to us. Something catches our eye and we forget about what's promised for something right here. And we think God can't give me what I long for the most and so I'll just go grab it myself and like a meal, it's, it's eaten and gone and forgotten. That temporary versus something eternal. Eternal. We bail on the faith. Now, there's an issue here, and I'm only going to address it real quickly. This will be for those of you who have just thought about this before, and maybe it's entered your mind if you're a if you've been around Christianity for a long time. You say, "What? How does eternal security fit into this? What about one saved, always saved?" Well, let me just say something to you because this is not the time to have that conversation. I've had it plenty of times in here, and I don't. And I'm you know I'm up to here with the argument. Let me just say this to you. The writer of Hebrews is speaking to everyone in the room because no one's utterly confident, utterly, until they get there. You don't know, you're, you're, you, don't know you got in until you're what? In. So keep your behind on the journey. Forget about the conversation about eternal security for a second because the, that guy is going to think, he's going to take his faith for granted if he's so confident he's going to get there this is this take that out of the picture for a minute the only thing that matters is that everyone in this room needs to know where we are today and what we're heading for today and if tomorrow you bail on that it doesn't matter what you did when you were 9 don't bail that's a message for everyone in the room And me. And there are a lot of reasons to bail. Do you know that? There are a lot of reasons to bail. I mean, I don't always agree with the way God runs the universe. Do you? Some people bail for that. I get selfish and I want things I can't have, I get overwhelmed. And I think it's not worth it. Don't fall short of the grace. So you're like, okay, okay, so, all right, so it's going to be worse if I bail. And then he sticks verse 28 into this deal. The last verse in Hebrews is, or 12, is, is verse 29. So he goes to twelve twenty-eight, and in this verse right here, after talking about this wonderful city, goes back to the idea of judgment being worse, and then he says, but let me give you the key. Let me give you the key, and it's sandwiched in right here at the end in in verse 28. And uh, let me see if I can find that. So, so he says... So because God's going to shake the earth and he's going to judge it and don't bail on grace or it'll be worse since we are receiving an unshakable kingdom. That's the city up there in the picture. We're already receiving it. We haven't fully gotten it yet but it's already some of the blessings are already being given to us about grace. We looked at them all last week. What does he say to do? Give thanks. And offer. How do we give thanks for the offering that was given to us? The disruption of the Trinity. God the Spirit taking on a body for the purpose of coming here and dying for us. And providing us salvation through grace. How do, what do we do with that? We give thanks and we offer back. Worship that is pleasing to God in devotion and awe. And I want to talk about these two words. We're trying to please him. Do things that please him. That's what you do when you're overwhelmed with gratitude. We're receiving a kingdom. By the way, now the city image becomes a kingdom. Which means at the center of the city is the king. He runs the show. You know, the best definition of kingdom Dallas Willow gives is just basically where where what he wants to happen actually happens. Because he's the king. Where what he wants to happen actually happens. You've come to a place where you're not the king. And you don't even deserve to be there. You've been given grace. And so you're thankful. And so you offer back to him your life in a way that's pleasing to him, not pleasing to you, pleasing to him. This is how people live in the city. This is the key, by the way, to understanding chapter 13. If you don't know how to breathe in grace, if you don't know the wonder of how to do this, chapter 13 is going to feel to you like you've gotten really close and you bail on the city. Can't take it anymore if you don't know what this means. So we need to address that for a second, but before we do, um, let, me take you one, let, me, let me take you back to our image. So here's our key. And he sandwiches it in there. But then he does something very interesting. He comes back to the concept of judgment in verse 29. So he leaves it here, comes back to it here, but in between, sandwiched this key. So he's telling the people, don't bail on the city, it'll be worse judgment. But you, you won't do that. You're receiving a kingdom, you're receiving life from that kingdom. And it's a kingdom of grace, and you're breathing the air of grace. So you're gonna be thankful and pleasing to God. By the way, that's how 1321 ends. And so, really, from here to here, it's the key that unlocks chapter 13, starts with the idea of being pleasing to God, ends with the idea of being pleasing before God. The life that we're going to be learning in chapter 13 is what it means to to live a life pleasing to God. But before he does that, he comes back to the idea of judgment again in verse 29. And this is how he ends. So after he gives us this incredible thing, he comes back to verse 29. Look what he says. For our God is indeed a devouring fire. Comes back to the image of fire. And he closes the book of Hebrews with this. It's as almost as if he sandwiches judgment and judgment and in between those who live in the kingdom. And so if we're going to look at our picture again, I'll give you a clean one here. In order to get to chapter 13 and the key to, to being city living in this grace and hanging in there through the journey, and doing it in a way that pleases him and not you. You got to go through this fire. This should have been the end of chapter 12. Because it's the key to 13. But he says this about this judgment again. God is a consuming fire. Why do the people who are already giving thanks and pleasing to God need to remember that God is fire? That's an important piece before you get into 13. In other words, before you go into 13, I want you to go through one more little fire. Now, let me say something about that. So we said before that the fire is God's holiness. Fire represents judgment, but it's not saying God is judgment. He's saying God is holy, and anything unholy can't survive in his presence. It'll get consumed, devoured. So what we learn is God's presence is overwhelming. Don't imagine for one moment that you could stand in his presence with some shabby resume of good things you've accomplished over the course of your life, it'll never stand up. So you come to him on his terms, which is grace. And so we learn again that there's a real problem for human beings getting into the presence of God. The presence of God is no simple thing. We think everybody who dies is gonna end up into the presence of God. That's how all funerals go. And we think that that's that's a safer fire then hell's fire. <laughs> it's not. See, people of grace, people of grace who've learned this, they never forget who they're dealing with. And because they know God's a fire, whenever their faith starts to get weakened and they're not sure what they, they remember God's a fire and they remember What he's done in order to make them survive in his presence. What he has accomplished. They never take God's presence for granted. Remember, this is holiness. And in chapter 12, which we have been looking at, he says, um, where is that verse? right before he tells you the story of Esau. He says, pursue holiness. And what he's basically saying is, people who've experienced grace, people who've experienced grace, they're not, that's this group, they're not afraid of that fire. They run right into that holiness. Are you with me? They move right through that holiness. They go right through that holiness, right into chapter 13 and say, God, show me what you want me to do. That's how they live their lives. Why do they pursue that holiness? What is that about? See, because of grace, we don't come into that fire threatened. Because of grace. We're not threatened that we'll be consumed by it. Like chapter 12 said earlier, or chapter 10 said earlier, consume a fire that consumes. God's enemies. We're not God's enemies. So we're not worried about the fire consuming us. We want the fire to purify us. We hate anything that makes it impossible to be in God's presence. Anyone who has received grace, they, they want to become the kind of people who can literally withstand the fires of God's presence. That's who they want to be. Because they know that (laughs) they will be eat up in a moment without his grace. God, make us presentable for your presence. That's how they live. And they're not afraid of the fire. They want the fire to purify them. Dallas Willard is the one who, you know, I'll never forget reading this, it just blew my mind. He said, The fires of heaven burn hotter than the fires of hell. Do you know what that means? It is far scarier to be in the presence of God than to be out of his presence as overwhelmingly horrible as that is. (laughs) I like what he writes, and I think it's worth hearing. Uh, Part of what he's getting at is, if you don't want to be with God now, you will not want to be with him later. Because when you get to heaven, he is the center of everything. His presence is everything. Everything he wants happens. He's the focal point. And if he's not the focal point of your life now, you're not going to want to be there. Listen to what he writes. Some people, I got to read this, and I want you to take it in slow because I've read it multiple times. You got to take it in slow. So are you ready? You ready to hear something phenomenal? All right, listen to this. Some people not only want to hide from God, but they want to be as far away from God as possible. Many people simply do not want to be with God. And the best place for them is to be wherever God is not, and that's what hell is. The fundamental reality of hell is separation from God, and that comes about because people don't want to be with God. For those people, being with God is the worst thing that could ever happen to them. A part of our problem with understanding hell comes from the way we think about heaven. This is this point, exactly. We think about heaven as some kind of comfortable resort. Here's what he writes. But the greatest thing about heaven is going to be the presence of God. God's the biggest thing on the horizon. You're no longer going to be able to avoid him. And that would be supreme torture if you don't want to be around him. For those who are here and don't want him in their life. That's why I sometimes say that the fires of heaven burn hotter than the fires of hell. People who have been saved by grace long for this fire, this this holiness fire. It burns much hotter than hell. Who God is is much hotter than anything on the planet, anything you could imagine in the universe. To be in his presence is no small thing. And people of grace know it, but they're attracted to it. They're drawn to his presence because they know those fires will purify them and make them into everything God wants them to be. And that's what they long for. And if that's not your heart, you won't be able to breathe at 8,000 meters when we get into chapter 13. You won't be able to take in the life that he's going to call for you. You're going to look at it and go, I'm not sure I really want that. But people who know grace are attracted to the life of chapter 13. They want the purifying effect of God's holiness in their life. Now I want to come back to this real quick and then I want us to do something Before we get into chapter 13, which is this key, I want us to go back to, uh, let's see where it is here, 28. Since we are receiving this kingdom, let us give thanks. Now, I have been meditating on this for quite a few months now as the key to chapter 13. It's gratitude. Is gratitude the key to the Christian life? People who have received grace, they're, they're so grateful. They, they pass by lesser meals and they're more attracted to God's grace and his fire in his presence. They want to be in his presence. And they know that being in his presence is an incredible gift. Not survivable by people without grace. And so in my reading this summer, and I, all I want to do is give you a couple of, just feel before we go into chapter 13 this next week, um, uh, and tell you that you probably wouldn't think if I asked you, what is the secret to the Christian life? That it was gratitude. So in all of my reading this summer, it was very interesting. as I was studying Hebrews on, on one track, another track reading, doing a lot of just separate reading. How much of it converged right here. And almost every single book I read, a pretty good stack, had plenty to say about thankfulness. And it drew my heart toward it. And here's what Craig Barnes wrote. I'm not certain that there are such things as measures of our spirituality. But if there are, then gratitude is probably the best one. In other words, you want to measure your spiritual life. You want to know where you stand. How grateful are you? Would be the answer to the question. Do you know all of unbelief? The root of unbelief, Paul says in Romans 1, is we didn't give thanks to God. You know what happens if you don't give thanks to God? You just go do what you want and you get what you want and you get what you think you need. You're not grateful for what you've been given. Ronald Rollhauser said this If faith is not rooted in gratitude, it will be inadequate, invariably more self serving than life giving. Gratitude is the basis of all holiness. And he's absolutely right. That's exactly what Hebrews 12 is saying. He wouldn't even talk about Hebrews 12. It's exactly what he's saying. God says, Pursue holiness. Who's running into the fire of God's presence? Only people who are grateful for grace. Those are the only people doing it. Gratitude is the basis for holiness. You want to ask a person, you want to see how, how holy is a person? You'll, you'll find out how, gra- how grateful he is. Gratefulness and holiness go together. You probably got some sin possibilities this week ahead of you. Would you agree? Some of them you already know are coming. Like it might be Thursday for you. Uh Uh-oh, Thursday's coming, and I'm going to be put in a bind, and I know it. Uh, She's going to walk in. He's going to ask me that. I'm going to have that choice. And the only thing that's going to make you not choose that lesser meal is gratitude. It won't be self-discipline. It won't be how many times you read the Bible last month. It'll be how grateful you are for what God has done for you and you want to offer back something pleasing to him. That's it. It won't be because you're smarter than the other guy. It won't be because you're stronger than the other guy. It'll just be you're just more grateful for grace. Another book I read by Mark Buchanan it's so that the only way to orient our lives toward God is by thankfulness. Thankfulness is the secret passageway into a room you can't find any other way. It's the wardrobe into Narnia. That's why I like the idea of it being a key that opens up chapter 13. Because chapter 13 is like Narnia. I Guinness. I'm just about done. I'm seven minutes over. Okay, just so you guys know. But I won't be more than 10. Okay, Cody? I won't be more than 10. He's panicking. Listen, the moment, here's what I was getting. This is so powerful. That's why I'm ending with this. The, the moment thank you is superfluous. Faith disintegrates. Rebellion against God doesn't begin with a clenched fist, but with a self-satisfied heart of one for whom thank you is redundant. In other words, you've taken all the credit. If you want to really know how sinister ungratefulness is, listen to the prayer of Bart Simpson, the great theologian. (laughs) Asked to say grace over dinner. Dear God, we paid for all this ourselves, so thanks for nothing. Yeah, you hear that? Oh, oh. See, there's nothing worse than an ungrateful heart. Because there's nothing more arrogant. Martin Luther said, nothing ages more quickly than gratitude. Gratitude. You say, I wonder why my Christian life has gone this way. You're just not grateful. You haven't thought about how, how hot God's presence is. How do you keep gratefulness alive? This is something I've been asking and struggling with. And uh, Oz Guinness said this Keeping alive a grateful heart is a spiritual art. Now, I've been meditating on that. What does that mean? Well, the last thing he wants you to do is do what we do to our kids. You say thank you right now or you're going to your room. Because that's not a grateful heart. That's just the words coming out. But he it says, it doesn't want you to come up with something mechanical. So what he says is, you gotta weave it through your life. So I want to give you a little challenge right here. All I want you to do for just a moment is bow your heads and listen to what I say to you right now. I want you to bow your heads and open your heart to this concept of gratitude. Right now, there may be something in your life. It's possible that you've already prayed about it. It's very likely you've been fretting about it. It's even more likely you've complained about it. But perhaps you haven't given thanks for it. So, because of God's grace and what He has promised for you and what's in store for you, I want you to follow along with what I'm about to say. And see if you can't turn it into a prayer to God, honestly, from your heart right now. And the prayer may go like this. Lord, even though right now, I'm not very thrilled with what's happening in my life. My situation or my circumstances. I can't imagine how it can be dealt with how it can be worked through or how it's going to be overcome. I've been following you on this journey of faith and I've come to a point where I don't know if I can go farther. Here's what the grateful heart will say. I will trust him and I will be who he asks me to be. I will value what he values. I will walk by lesser meals. Because of all he has already given me, I know he will give me what I need to get through this or he will make me who I need to be to get through this. Isn't that a great promise? And that ultimately I'm safe I'm untouchable, and I'm assured of being in his presence forever, and there is no place I would rather be. And if you prayed that, say amen. Amen. That's a grateful heart. That's what a grateful heart does. That's how a grateful heart keeps going when times get tough. thankful. Father, we are grateful. We just come into your presence like the writer says, grateful for what you've done for us. We pursue holiness because we're grateful. We love you for what you've done. In Jesus' name. Amen. (laughs)